Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. And you are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill. The time is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we will be discussing the topic of truth and reconciliation and how it applies to the main Wabanaki tribes. But first of all, I would like to ask you to continue to call in for your pledges Uh, We are a listening-supported radio station with unique and diverse programming. Particularly, uh, this is one of the very few shows in the state of Maine that allows the Wabanaki voices to be heard unspun. And we hope that you will call in with your pledge. This is the the last week, and we still have lots of money to raise. So please call in with your pledge so that programs like this can continue. The number to call is 1-800-643-6273, 1-800-643-6273. My special guest today with me here uh, is Esther Adian uh, of the, uh, she's she's a Passamaquoddy tribal member, but she also works for the uh, Children and Youth and family program out of the uh, Muskie Center of the University of Southern Maine. Uh, Good morning, Esther. Morning. Good to have you here. Thank you. Uh, We will be uh, actually talking to uh, Denise Altvader, who is on the phone, and she'll also be part of our discussion. Uh, She's the director of the Wabanaki program for the American Friends Service Committee. Uh, Before we begin our discussion on... uh, uh, reconciliation, truth and reconciliation. I just want to talk, lay a little bit of background about the subject. I, of course, uh, usually I go to uh, uh, to Wikipedia, <laughs> which I did in this case. I uh, I think it's a, it's a very good source. So, according to Wikipedia, a truth commission or truth and reconciliation commission is a commission tasked with discovering and revealing past wrongdoing by a government or, depending on the circumstances, non-state actors, also uh, in the hope of resolving conflict left over from the past. They are under various names, occasionally set up by states, emerging from periods of internal unrest, civil war, or dictatorship. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, is one of the uh, better-known ones, and uh, that was established by uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, and usually these, uh, these commissions, uh, they, they talk to uh, victims and, and get their stories, and, uh, and then they, they uh, bring these stories out to the public and, 
and work to resolve some of these past issues. So, uh, and also a little bit of research I've did there, I've done. There's uh, something like 18 uh, uh, truth and reconciliation commissions uh, around the world. And uh, just to, to name a few, there's a, you know there was one in Argentina, uh, another in uh, Canada for the residential uh, native schools, and there's been like there's been four uh, suggested uh, truth and reconciliation commissions uh, uh, in the United States. One was uh, actually they actually occurred. Uh, there was one in, in uh, Greensboro. Uh, that uh, they had, that they held. And uh, we'll be talking just a little bit about that. Uh, and uh, then there's, they wanted to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission about uh, torture in Iraq. And uh, there's another one uh, talked about that examines human rights abuses uh, resulting from U.S. foreign policy. And uh, Patrick Leahy, Senator Patrick Leahy, uh, and Representative John Conyers uh, wanted to have one to investigate, but not prosecute, uh, alleged crimes of the Bush administration. So truth and reconciliation commissions um, are not really uh, new, but uh, they've been new to Maine. So I'm going to ask uh, Esther to tell us uh, about uh, how she came and, and also maybe uh, Denise. Denise, are you there? Denise, Altivator, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, are you listening, right? I'm listening, Donna. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm just asking uh, Esther to uh, start filling us in on this uh, idea that uh, has come about, uh, reference the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So, Esther. Thank you. <clears throat> um one thing I'd like to start out by saying is that many of the truth commissions around the world have as one of their objectives um, a, a nation-building goal. Um, and this truth commission process that we have undertaken is different in that we are um, – we're really – the two purposes are to give voice to Wabanaki people and their experiences with state child welfare. And the other purpose is to uh, improve practices for Wabanaki people. Um, there hasn't been uh, a truth commission in the United States territory um, for Native people. There, you mentioned the Greensboro Truth Commission, um, and that was around an event that happened in Greensboro, North Carolina. There was a uh, um, a Klan and Labor Party. There was a Labor Party protest, and the Klan showed up, and there was some. I think five people that were, were, were killed. And that Truth Commission was not supported by the Greensboro City Council at all. Uh, it was a, a grassroots effort supported by the Andrus Family Fund, uh, which is the, the funders for our project. Um, the truth and reconciliation process that we're working on, as I mentioned, um, deals primarily with uh, Wabanaki people's experiences with Maine State Child Welfare from the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1978 um, to the present. And what another very distinctive um, aspect of our process is that we are collaboratively doing this uh, with state folks from the Office of Child and Family Services. The, um, the TRC convening group is represented by tribal child welfare workers, 
uh, tribal folks that represent other agencies like Wabanaki Mental Health and uh, the American Friends Service Committee and by folks from the Office of Child and Family Services. So um, Esther or Denise, either one of you, uh, why did you think that there was a great need for a uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Um, In... I'll have to backtrack a little. In 1999, um, staff from both the state and tribal child welfare systems came together to address the issue of um, state noncompliance with the Indian Child Welfare Act, which which is a federal law. Okay, the Indian Child Welfare Act is a federal law. That was passed in 1978. And and what, what was that about? What did that do? What was the effect of that law? Uh, the the ICWA, as we call it, um, was passed in 1978 to address the high numbers of Native children that were taken from Native homes and families and communities and and raised in non-Native homes. Okay, so and that number was so outrageous that they had to create a federal law to protect those children and, and families? Yes, there, there was a, a very disproportionate number of Native children that were being taken into care and being raised outside of their uh, communities. I believe in the state of Maine, uh, the rate was 19 times that of the, uh, the country. So in the state of Maine, uh, a Native child had 19 times more chance of being taken away from their family and raised um, outside of their family and community and culture. Okay. And, and you saw this occurring uh, when you decided that that this commission uh, well, would be a Well, in 99, we, uh, tribes and the state folks got together and, and started building a really positive collaborative relationship around developing the training for state workers to increase their equal compliance. And a lot of improvements have been have happened since since 1999. Um, we have uh, tribal folks um, facilitating the ICWA component of the pre-service training that's offered to all caseworkers. We have the state commitment to treat child welfare, tribal child welfare st- staff as equal colleagues. Um, tribes receive access to Chafee Independent Living Funds. There was passage of legislation in 99 that allowed the state to recognize tribally approved foster homes. So a lot of, a lot of progress has been made, but still um, tribal child welfare workers would still talk about coming up, encountering this invisible wall, as they called it. There was something there that it was hard to articulate. Um, and we decided as a group, um, OCFS included, that we really needed to go back into the past and really um, hear the stories of people to validate and acknowledge their experiences before we could really move forward um, in, in, a, in a more productive, uh, collaborative way. So this... OCFS, you refer to as Office of Child and Family Services? Yes. Okay. Uh, Denise? Yes. Uh, do you have anything you would like to uh, add? Yes. Um, when, when we began this work in 1999, within the first year, we trained over 500 DHS workers as a combined group, state and tribal um, together. And over the last 10 years, we have developed not only a really good working relationship, but a very close personal relationship where we agree and we understand the needs of of the youth. And and our primary focus is truly to make sure that Native youth get the best treatment and, and the best services that they can. And we're in a time right now in the tribal communities where we're dealing with all kinds of issues 
that have to do with things that happened in the past, some of them from the state and some of them not from the state. There are other issues that need to be addressed, but this particular issue has come about because of our great work and relationship and our caring together about what happens to Native um, children. And, um, you know, right now, grandparents and parents are parenting their children based on their experiences of being brought up either on the reservation or in non-Native foster homes. And, that, and, and, and those experiences have changed the way we behave and the way we think and the way we are as people. And so that whole historical um, trauma that people experienced while they were taken from their communities and placed in non-Native foster homes is to this day being handed down to our young children and our grandchildren. Yeah, so it's a generational sort of what uh, Eunice Bauman used to yes. refer to as soul wound. Absolutely. And, you know, and as we talked about wanting to really, I mean, this group is a very unique group. We are the first um, group across the country. We are a model for other states on working together, the state and the tribe, on child welfare issues, which is a huge, difficult issue. If you want to name a bunch of issues that need to be dealt with, I think this is one of the biggest, and it has the most um, um, hurtful history behind it. So, I mean, everybody working on this deserves a whole lot of credit for the hard work that's been done up till now. And this, doing this truth and reconciliation to me, Maine has, in many ways, in different areas, been the first to do some things with Native communities. I know there are places where people think that they have done some things worse than other states, but there are some things that they have done really positive, and this ICWA project is one of them. The other thing is Maine um, went and on its own passed ICWA for the state of Maine. Um, they went... Uh, over and above what the federal law says. And State um, Department of Child and Family Services is developing, along with the tribe, a special um, um, document that will teach their workers how to implement ICWA, not only the intent of the law, but they want to make sure that the spirit of the law is included in that. And so this truth and reconciliation process is unique. It's a first. It's groundbreaking. It is one of the very first truth and reconciliation processes where the two opposing sides, which we don't consider ourselves, but if that's the way you want to look at how truth and reconciliation operates, are jointly working to do this together for the betterment of the communities. Um, it's for the healing of the tribes. I truly believe that if this process goes forward, we're going to start seeing, and we already have started to see, People come forward and talk about their experiences who have never talked about being in um, foster home before. And we have already trained people in the communities who can talk with these people and be supportive. Um, we are going to do this. We, the idea came about jointly with the state. We've worked on it, and we've worked very hard and diligently on it. We are in the process. We have gotten all of the tribes to sign on to the declaration. We are in the process of working with the governor's office to sign on to the declaration. We are hoping to move forward with this and 
together and be another piece of groundbreaking work for the state of Maine. But whatever happens, it's going to go forward. We are going to do the work because it's that important, and it it absolutely has to be done. Denise, uh, do you have any idea of the numbers that uh, have been affected by these uh, uh, foster homes and residences and whatever? You know, when we first started this, and even a year later, we all looked at each other and said, do we have a clue? And we all were like, no, we don't have a clue. And then as the, about six months ago, as we started putting things, um, I put stuff on Facebook. We've talked to people. I've made presentations before the governor and council. We've gone to different communities and made presentations. I've received emails from people who live outside of Maine. I've received calls from people who live in my community who I have known my entire life, who I never knew were in foster care. And right now we're starting to get a handle on Pleasant Point where I think we're going to be seeing at least two or three dozen from Pleasant Point that are going to be in that situation. I don't have a handle on the other communities yet because we're just right now getting the word out to people. It's something that people didn't talk about. And I think one of the reasons they didn't talk about it is because they didn't want to betray their parents for putting them or allowing them to be taken, that somehow they were to blame. Um, But that silence is now being broken, and people are now realizing why they do the things they do, behave the way they behave, and parent the way that they parent. So this, uh, the effect of... of, uh these uh, this treatment of the of the children is uh, it goes from generation to generation. You, you know you see the effects in actions, uh, it, sort of like uh, in what they do. I mean, it's like uh, I don't know. It's 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 like you know for, for the for for being aggressive and 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 sort of acting out and, and a lot of times uh, just don't trust people. Mm-hmm. You know. I, you know, back in 99, what we did when we did the training is we wanted to pay attention to having state workers um, understand the spirit of the law because we wanted them to want to implement it. We wanted them to understand why it was important. So we did a video, and in the video, we interviewed adults from the different communities who had been taken from their homes and placed in state child welfare. And none of the people interviewed knew what the other people were saying, but there was, a co- there was a couple of common themes that came out. One was there was this huge sense of feeling that people did not belong, that people felt like, I don't belong anywhere, um, I might just disappear, having a difficult time feeling grounded anywhere. And the other thing that was common is people had a difficult time showing love and affection to their children. They, they were void of emotion and unable to just, you know, hug their children and say, you know, I love you. Um, so those were two common themes that, that came about from the, just, you know, watching the video and listening to everybody. And we ended up naming the video Belonging. I, I also want to add that, you know, through the truth-telling aspect of, um, of this process, 
we will hear a lot of stories of um, of trauma and pain. But I also want us to, to remember that we're not supposed to be here. Uh, the policies against Native people were that of genocide. Um, and we are still here. So I, I, I want to highlight that we will hear stories of strength and, and survival and things that we did, you know, to, um, to remain here. I guess I'm uh, sort of curious as to uh, know the process that you envision, uh, you know, how how does this? What do you what do you see uh, you doing with this? This how are you going to form it? What do you you know? What you going to do? What are your steps? Denise, you want me to or no? Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, right now we're as Denise mentioned, we drafted a declaration of intent, and that that's just a document that um, we've had all the tribal uh, chiefs and councils have endorsed it. We're asking the state of Maine to endorse it as well. And the declaration just lays out their intent. We intend to embark on this process together and collaboratively. And we, um, they also agree to, um, to listen to the recommendations that come out of the commission. The next step is to, um, find, to find a commission. We have to collaboratively work together and, um, find, decide on a process to select commission members. Once we have a commission seated, uh, we will have for them what we call a mandate. And a mandate is basically um, the instruction and the authorization for the commission structure, activities, and products. Um, it's like the recipe. This is, this is their charge. This is what they will do. Um, and within that, we also, um, once the commission is seated, we envision having the commission, however, you know, the Greensboro Commission, I think, was was like 12 people. The Canadian Commission is three people. We're not sure what it actually will look like, but we'll have this body of folks that will spend time within each Native community, and they'll be there to, to do research. Um, they'll have staff support to help um, look through documents and historical um, <clears throat> documents within that community to get a, a, a sense and a context of what happened to those people because the experiences of folks at Pleasant Point are totally different than the experiences of, of people um, up in the Mi'kmaq community in Presque Isle. Um, and within that time, the commission, the time that they spend in the community, there'll be time for people to come and share their stories. Those people that Denise talked about, those two or three dozen that have had uh, direct experiences with state child welfare. We'll also have opportunity for people to share their stories, um, not only th- through oral testimony, but through written testimony or whatever makes the most sense and uh, is for the people that are sharing their stories. And we're not, we're also expecting to hear from people who are impacted. Maybe their, their parent um, had an experience in child welfare um, and they didn't directly, but they feel the impact of that. The, the things that Denise talked about, not being able to bond with your children and uh, know how to parent your children. Did I have a, yeah, yeah. just a, a question mm-hmm. on the, uh, the, form, the, uh, the membership of the commission. Now, will all of these commission members be Native? Um, we, in thinking about the, what the commission looks like, um, we don't have any set parameters like that. What we would like to do is have qualities of people and, and find people that fit those qualities, um, you know, it, it, whether they're Native or non-Native. The, the thing about a, a commission with this process is it really has to be people that everybody um, agrees to and everybody feels that these people have integrity and these people can, can move the work forward and, and listen to the stories and make sound recommendations. 
you know, so there, it has to be folks that everybody uh, has respect for. So the, in, the, in the charge of the commission uh, will be decided after the commission is formed? No, well, as soon as we have the declaration, uh, all the parties sign the declaration, that we have a convening group that is uh, made up of representatives from the Office of Child and Family Services for the state and all of the tribal child welfare programs. And that convening group will work with the tribal and state governments to create this mandate before the commissioners are selected. Now, you, you mentioned uh, researching uh, uh, documents uh, on the, the, uh, the, in the tribal communities. Mm-hmm. Now, you, uh, have you, have you got, gotten approval or uh, backing from uh, the, the tribal communities? Yes, we have, um, <clears throat> we have met with each tribal chief and council in our, all of the five communities, and all of them have uh, signed off on the declaration of intent. They're they're very supportive. One um, one council meeting I attended, the the tribal chief said, "It's about time. They're really ready for this." Yeah. And, and another thought comes to mind is that once uh, stories are are being uh, listened to and, and discussed and, and whatever. Uh, it, it seems that there's there will be a big impact on uh, the person telling the story mm-hmm. and the people listening to the story. So my my question is, uh, what sort of uh, uh, counseling or uh, you know will you have special counselors available for for these people that uh, might need it? Uh, we're in the process now of um, building the capacity within each community. Uh, each community has a a community group that um, made up of people who are the natural go-to people, the natural helpers within the community, and they are um, responsible for setting up that net- network of support for people, whether it be, um, you know, professional counselors, whether it be um, people from the faith community or our traditional healers, uh, whatever is necessary within that community. And those people know their communities well, uh, better than anyone so yeah, we are definitely attending to that. And it and it is a big concern, Donna, because when we did the the training and we did the video back in '99, some of the people that were involved had a difficult time afterwards, a very difficult time. And um, I'm one of those people. You know, over the last um, ten years, I've had a, a really hard time. Um, and it was brought up, we just had a um, retreat, and we talked a lot about this and a lot about how. Um, People are going to be coming forward and talking about things that they've never talked about before that are going to be very painful, that are going to bring up a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings and making sure that we're prepared to help them to deal with that. And, you know, some of the people felt like, do we really want to open this can of worms? Is it really worth, you know, going through all of this? And, you know, one of the things that I've learned and I brought up is over the last 10 years, um, before I started this process, I was one of those, I was in the video, I was one of those parents who, you know, had a difficult time not only having emotion for my children, but for anybody or emotion, period. And so I ended up um, in a hospital after the process, and I've had good times and bad times ever since. So I, I look at the choice today. And what I told them is, would I choose now, knowing what I know, to do it all over again? And I would a hundred times over because I have, I have two choices if I look back now. 
I could have remained the way I was and lived my last 10 years with no no happiness, not knowing what joy is, not knowing how to love my family, or go through the process and have some very difficult times, but in between have some incredible, joyful times in my life where I've been able to enjoy my life, enjoy my family, um, love my children, uh, feel better about myself. You know, I, I keep thinking of, uh, of uh, what we call PTSD, yeah. you know, post-traumatic stress. Uh, syndrome, and it, it seems like there's a a whole generation of uh, children and people that are affected by this PTSD, and in uh, that there's a, a special uh, need for that type of counseling in, in in this particular situation. I think one thing that um, Denise mentioned, we had a retreat and. We brought together um, folks from all of the communities that are have committed to be part of these community groups, and we really we focused on acknowledging that everybody has the capacity to help each other. Um, you don't necessarily need to have a degree. We need to pathologize some of these things. We we all have the capacity to listen to each other, which is key to healing. Um, our ancestors. Um, actually did that. Uh, we, we actually sat around and, and listened to each other, however long it took. So I know, I know some, some folks have probably participated in a talking circle, and if you've ever been in a talking circle, sometimes it can last hours and hours, and that's because we had the capacity to, to listen and give each other that complete attention. Um, so we, not to discredit, you know, um, professional counselors, um, or anyone from the mental health profession, but we they're just a part of the support network. We also need, um, you know, just common citizens to be able to to listen to each other and, and help each other heal. So we all have that capacity. You're listening to WERU, Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Our topic today is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Wabanaki Children here in Maine. Denise, do you have anything to add to that? Um, nope. I, um, I, I, the, I guess the only other thing I want to say is we've involved people who know what the resources is. We will have, um, everyone will have available to them, um, resources, where to get help, where help is available, and we'll have people who can, um, help them find those resources if it's necessary. So we'd, we're really being very, very careful. Um, making sure that, that people are taken care of and are safe as we do this process. So, you know, another piece to this, I mean, there's always, there's always barriers when, you, when you're trying to get something done. And uh, I don't know if this would be a barrier or it could, could or could not be. But, you know, we have a, a change in administration here in the state. We have a new, a new governor and new staff. So... Uh, how are you how are you going to uh you know start educating them or uh, it, it, it's a two part question i guess you need to educate them uh and and win their support but failing to do that let's hope you don't but do you have a plan b well i i like to think we have i guess it would be called the plan a one we have a plan a which is to to go forward with this um with the support of the current and the new administration within the state. Um, and plan A1 is to go forward without them. 
uh, it, it'll be the same process, but it'll be just the tribal communities that are doing that. I feel very hopeful that um, we've engaged with the state for so long at, at that level with Office of Child and Family Services. I I have a lot of hope that, that we can engage the uh, governor's office, and we are working really closely with the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. Um, they, they're helping us um, engage with uh, the new administration. So I would like to, the, the way I operate, I'd, I'd like to give everyone the benefit of the doubt first before I start climbing that ladder of inference. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily see it as a plan B. I, I just see this is our plan, this is what we're going to do, and, you know, come on board. But if not, we're still doing it. Would you agree with that, Denise? Yes, absolutely. That's, that's the plan A and A1. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so no big. No. Nope. Uh, okay. Uh, so then, then your your uh, your process is is basically to hold uh, hearings. Is that the right word? Hearings. Yeah. Once the commission um, is seated and they visit each tribal community, we envision them having um, an an open um, a time for hearings for open testimony. But we also recognize that some people won't be able to to share their stories that way. So we're giving them alternative um, avenues to do that, either through written testimony or maybe to meet with the commission in private. So, what's going to be the product of this? Um, <clears throat> The, out of Truth Commissions, usually the product, is, it's called an executive summary, and it summarizes uh, the testimony and, and the themes throughout the testimony, and at the end it makes recommendations to address those, um, whatever had happened. So it's really to find out what, 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 it, what happened, what is happening, and what needs to happen to improve practice. And then in those uh, findings would be implemented on the, the tribal end as well as the state end? That would be the hope? or Yeah. I'm, I mean, we're a lot of this, that there's no guarantees. We don't know what, what the stories are going to be. We don't know what the experiences people are going to share. We, we, we don't know what the commission is going to recommend. We, it's really a test of faith. We really have to have a lot of, a lot of faith and, and trust in the process. Um, there could be recommendations for the state to improve their practice. There could be recommendations for things tribes can do to help Wabanaki children and families in child welfare. Or and recommendations that an individual or a family could do. Possibly, yeah, possibly. Um, you know, I know that when, when the tribal governments all signed on to this, they, they are well aware of that risk too. Um, everybody is, is really trusting in the process. I know that it's really difficult when uh, there is a process like this because uh, I remember being on judiciary when they had a similar process to do with the Baxter mm -hmm. School of the Deaf. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very uh, painful, and it was it was it was hard. And and you know we really we didn't know what would what was going to come of that. And uh, and I think it was a it was healing it was healing for them and it was healing. Uh, for the people that had to deal with them mm -hmm. and the families. Uh, we've, I mean, yeah. we've also, you know, had discussions about how to support the commissioners through this too because they'll be, of, of anyone, they'll be the ones that, that hear all of the stories and get all of the information. So they're going to need some level of support as well. Yeah, no, in, in the, uh, the, the other piece to this too, and, and, and I know you're, you're not going 
for anything like this. Uh, in in Canada, I, I guess the uh, they have uh, mo- uh, money awards for the for for those that, that have been abused in residential schools. Uh, and, and in the Baxter uh, situation, there was uh, funding from the, the state as well. Uh, but do you do you see anything like that? Uh, reparations? Yeah, reparations. Uh, um, it, it's, n- it's nothing that we are focused on, but it's nothing that we have rolled out. It, it really will be up to the commission to decide if reparations are in order or apologies or... Um, you know, the, the word reconciliation means a lot to a lot of folks. Um, some people would think that just improved practice and making things better is a form of reconciliation. Um, it, it's, really, it's really individual, and that, that is something that we, we just don't know. I think, I think uh, on an individual basis, it's, uh, it's sort of like having your, your experience validated by uh, another person or an organization that just makes you feel that much better. Denise, do you have anything you'd like to say? Um, nope. I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> you're done, huh? No, you're not. We got 20 we minutes. Still got, we do. We're still not got, done. <laughs> we still got lots of time here. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you, uh, if anybody, if you're open for the for for questions, I can. I can put that out there for anybody listening. That uh, uh, is there a gong button if we don't like the question? We're <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, for those of you who have been who have been listening to us, this is uh, WERU, and I'm your host, Donna Loring, and we've been talking about truth and reconciliation for uh, Native children that have been in foster care and uh, uh, and affected by the uh, Indian Child Welfare. Uh, act in the situation here in the state of Maine. Uh, if any of you have any comments or questions, uh, you can you feel free to call us at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Esther, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I was just I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the. Um the value of relationships within this whole process. Uh, really, this this truth and reconciliation process started back in 1999 when when state and tribal folks got together to um, develop that training around ICWA compliance. And if it if it hadn't been for all of the the hard work and the discussions and the laughs and the tears, um, we never would be here now. I think Denise would agree with that too. Because really all of these constructs that we're talking about, um, when you talk about disproportionate numbers of Native children being removed from their homes, um, you know, what we're talking about is oppression, and we're talking about internalized oppression, and those are, those are created by humans, but they're not humane. <laughs> and really to do this work, we have to get, we have to bring it from our head. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you can read about statistics and, and about history, and you can know it in your head, but until you really start working from your heart, this doesn't. This isn't effective. Uh, it's really a process of of undoing racism and decolonizing ourselves, and, and it's something that has to be heartfelt, and it has been. Um, we have a great relationship with all of the folks on the convening group. Well, you know, I think another effect of this, uh, if you do the, uh, if it's publicized, it's very difficult a lot of times to get native issues uh, on the radar screen for the the general public. 
but if uh, if this is in the public's eye, uh, it will give them uh, a view that of of native inside stories and history and issues that they've never had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's a very very important for this. Yes, it is. It has, and as Denise said, it has never been done on U.S. territory. There has never been a truth and reconciliation for Native people. We have a caller. Caller, could you uh, tell us your first name and uh, give us your question? Hi, this is Gray from Hancock, and I'm, I'm very pleased to hear this show. Thank you for bringing it on. Thank um, you. And I, this whole discussion reminds me of the song by Peter Tosh, uh, you call equal rights, where the words basically are, uh, um, I don't want any peace until I get equal rights and justice. And I think reconciliation has a lot of the same characteristics as peace, because that's sort of the, you know, um, in that respect. And um, I think you need justice before you can really have true recu- reconciliation. And if that's going to happen also... I think you need to have the individuals who have been uh, 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 harmed, and I can't imagine what that must be like, uh, be on, meet somewhere with the people who harmed them or the institution that harmed them, but as equals. In other words, an individual against meeting the government is always at a disadvantage, and you have to create some kind of situation where there's some kind of parity in in uh, in the meeting, so that justice will be served, and it won't be just sweeping something under the rug. Anyway, that's my comment, and I'd be interested to hear. Your Thank response. you for calling. Um, just as reconciliation means different things to different people, so does justice. Um, you know, some some victims might feel that it's justice is served if they get an apology. Some victims might feel justice is served if there's uh, a change in policy or a change in practice or if they receive um, reparations. But definitely those, those are conversations that the convening group has had about truth, about justice, <laughs> about peace and reconciliation. And, um, yeah, th- th- that is definitely on our minds. Denise? You know, one of the things that has amazed me recently in talking to people and even some of the individuals who were um, in the video called Belonging is, you know, you think about the stories, and some of the stories are very difficult and very painful, and that these incredible people are, after all these years of suffering um, as a result of their experience, um, that they are right now, some of them, all they care about is hearing an apology, telling their story, but most of all, what they care about is being heard. For the first time, that somebody will hear them, somebody will be um, specifically sitting in a place designated to do nothing but hear their story. And, you know, when you think about what they've, what they've lived through and the, the the you know what this has done to their families for their frame of mind not to be um, anger or I want um, I want revenge I I want to be heard and and that's just an amazing and um, 
incredible thing for me, for a human being to, to be at. I, I admire those people very, very much. And that is why I hope that the state does come through and does work with us on this, because I think they will just be missing an, a, a really great opportunity if they don't. Mm, I agree. And, and we have a caller on the line. Could I have your first name and your question or your comment? Hi, ladies. This is Maria. Hi, Maria. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> yeah, Good. Good. I'm just joining you guys recently, so I haven't heard the beginning of the show. But I did want to go on with a comment. I wanted to um, uh, give kudos to Denise and Esther for the hard work that they're doing. It's really precedent-setting. And in my mind, this is history in the making. And I, I really think that this is the wave of the future to um, have a new use of history um, and, and look at truth. Mm. And um, so often I hear that um, people need to, you know, get over things, move on, but it's also hard to do when the truth has never been told. So kudos to you for your hard work, and um, I'm really proud of you guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for Maria. your comment, Maria. Have a, have a good day. Okay. Me too. So, yeah, I mean, Maria uh, hits the nail right on the head there. Uh, and uh, this this is, I mean, it is, and it will be precedent-setting. And uh, we're, we're also, you know, in this process, thinking about the people on the other end, those state child welfare workers that were doing their job, um, that, that were uh, making decisions. I guess, you know, years ago you could take a child from their home without a court order. You just needed a supervisor's signature. So they were making, they were out there having to make all of these decisions. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that this will be a chance for them to share their story and maybe do some healing for themselves, for, for the role that they had found themselves in, and, and sometimes an impossible situation. So these, these uh, for lack of a better word, I guess, hearings, uh, would also include stories from the workers as well? We're hoping. Yeah, we're, we're, we are very hopeful that we will hear from, from folks on that side, former caseworkers, former supervisors, administrators, that, um, that, had, that made this impact and, and were part of this decision-making. Um, it comes to mind uh, a story that uh, Chief Commander uh, told uh, a while back about uh, a, a child being taken and how she came up on the scene of the of a police vehicle being in front of a trailer and them you know wanting to go in and, and take the child and she basically said no you can't do that you're on you're on tribal land and uh, we we forbid you to do that and there are stories like that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, would I think add to uh, to the to the power of these of these uh, scenarios and, and cases that come out. Mm-hmm. There, there are definitely stories from the past, and there are stories um, in, in present day. Now, the present day, that, I think, would be very uh, intriguing. And, and um, I, I, people are, uh, are, are, I think, really drawn in by, uh, by present-day, current things well, that are happening. there was a, a recent decision um, ruling by the Maine Human Rights Commission um, against a, uh, a OCFS caseworker in um, racially discriminating against a Native person. So that, that was just recent. That was this year. This year? You can find out about it if you go to Pine Tree Legal's website, ptla.org. 
the, in the news section, they, they in the, under Wabanaki Legal News, they have a write-up about about the case because they represented the uh, the uh, native person in that case. So these these things are still happening as we speak. Mm-hmm. And it's because of these things that we made the joint decision that we need to go back and we need to take a look at what happened. We need to reconcile it so that we can move forward in the best way possible. I mean, we can move forward. We've been moving forward. But are we moving forward in the best way and what is best for the kids? That, that's, our, that's our main objective right there. Do you have a, uh, a plan to uh, a, a marketing or publicity uh, plan for this? Yeah, right here. No, just, yeah, Esther, I know. <laughs> right, I'm on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we... Um, we are paying attention to that. We have are in the process of developing a website. Um, we're so early in the process that we don't even have an address yet. <laughs> but we're hoping it will be something simple like um, maintribaltruth.org um, or something like that. But there will be links to it on each of the tribal websites. We also are thinking about we really want to document and archive our process so that other um, tribes and states can use it. Um, either other tribes and states or within the state of Maine in other areas of tribal state relations. So we, at our retreat that we held, we had um, some videotaping done, and, and we're hoping to, to develop some a lot of teaching tools from that. We are also planning, um, just as soon as Governor Baldacci agrees to sign the declaration, which I know he will do, um, we are planning a big um, public signing event, a ceremony, where all the tribal leaders and the governor um, will publicly get together and we'll have media there and do a signing of the um, declaration. Ideally, both, you know, the the Governor Baldacci and the new Governor LePage. Yes. And I, that would be ideal in my eyes if they would both be there. That would, that would be. We're hoping to do that in the third week in December, I believe. Well, that would be a great kickoff right there. Yes, yes. would. It would be an, an, a great visual of the, the collaborative relationship that we've built. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's also uh, a, a social media piece here, you know, like Twitter and, and Facebook. and. I'm doing the Facebook. I, I'm working on a Facebook page. Um, and I'm gonna, um, I, I need to try to help other communities develop one, too, because you're right. That's a great media right there. Yeah. yeah, and then Twitter is sort of like instantaneous. I, I, I'm not involved with that myself, but <laughs> just heard about it. But the, yeah, definitely the Facebook will be a valuable tool for the community groups to network within each community and between communities to help support each other in their work to support their tribal folks. Yeah. I mean, this this seems almost like a full time job for you guys to do this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've lots of planning. We've worked very hard. So uh, do you have any last thoughts about this? Uh, I'll go with you, Denise, first. Um, you know, I, I always have a visual of my grandchildren in my mind, no matter what it is that I do. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work with the Department of Corrections that I think has been very successful. I've done a lot of work around, um, um, 
you know, um, the, 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 the incarceration of Native people and racial profiling, and, and now this piece of work. And I always think about my grandchildren, and it always brings tears to my eyes because, you know, my grandchildren are as beautiful and wonderful as any non-Native grandchild. They, they, they deserve the same chance. They deserve the same rights and opportunities. And they deserve to have uh, the same chance as in a, to have a good future. Um, and so that's why, I'm, to me, this is very personal. This is very um, important to me. I, I want what, whatever I do um, to make a difference in the lives of my grandchildren because I do not want them to ever have to go through what I went through in my life. Um, so um, that's why um, I just hope this works out. I really do. Esther? Um, I just keep thinking about, like I said before, the value of relationships and, and the humanity of this process. Because really, when, when you talk about racism and oppression, internalized oppression, those are systems that that we are all part of not by choice. You know, we, we didn't choose, uh, we don't choose to, to be part of the system that oppresses people. But it's only when we get in touch with our humanity and, and we relate to each other um, on that level that we can really start to undo some of this. Um, and I, to me, that, that it's been so clear over the past two years and it's, it's really helped me um, in, you know, in, in all areas of my life and how I relate to people and see people and um, how I appreciate people. I will say that uh, when I heard about this uh, truth and reconciliation uh, idea, I really totally, my mind went back to uh, meeting Sheila Sisulu, who was the uh, uh, consul general at one time uh, to South Africa and who moved on actually to... uh, to be the ambassador from South Africa. And uh, she, I met her a number of times, uh, had dinner in the embassy. And uh, we, she actually came to Penobscot for a tribal chief's inauguration. And we talked about the uh, truth and reconciliation uh, process. And she lent me a book. And the book is called Country of My Skull. And it's by... Anchi Krog, A-N-T-J-I-E, Krog, K-R-O-G. And it's a book about that process and the cases that were heard and the results and the recommendations. And at the end, at the very end of her book, and after going through all of the process, she writes, she writes this uh, portion, and I'm going to just read it to you um, in closing. And... Uh, she she says uh, it, it, she talks about uh, in a wild arc of air I rock with the commissioners in the boat back to the mainland. This is after all of these uh, hearings that she'd gone through, and she says, uh, "For all its failures, it carries a flame of hope that makes me proud to be here of here." But I want to put it more simply. I want this hand of mine to write, to write it for us all, all voices, all victims. 
Because of you, this country no longer lies between us, but within its breaths be calmed after being wounded and in its wondrous throat. In the cradle of my skull it sings, it ignites my tongue, my inner ear, the cavity of heart shudders towards the outline, new and soft, intimate clicks and gutturals. Of my soul the retina learns to expand daily because by a thousand stories I was scorched. I am changed forever. I want to say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. You, whom I have wronged, please take me with you. Thank you for joining us. Um, this is, I'm your host of Wabanaki Windows, Donna Loring, and this is WERU, and hope to talk to you again next month for another show. Thank you very much. WERU strives to build community through music, news,